0: I I will never forget that morning. I was sitting in the office here at the church. The phone rang. I was going through my mail just another Tuesday morning. And I picked up the phone, and it was my wife Amy at the other end of the line. And she said, are you watching TV? Are you, are you listening to the news? A plane, an airplane has hit the World Trade Center, and they think it might be terrorists. And I remember hanging up the phone just in a complete daze and getting up from my chair and walking out into the hallway and heading down towards some sound I heard coming from our fellowship hall and wandering into the fellowship hall and seeing a whole gaggle of staff members and some of the volunteers at the church all huddled together around a television set and watching the most amazing footage I'd ever seen. Absolutely surreal incredibly disturbing scenes of chaos and death and unimaginable uh, tragedy. And uh, I just, like everybody else, just had no words to to process what seemed to be unfolding. Within the hour, we would know that one of our our congregation's best-loved servants, Jeff Mladnik, had been aboard that first plane. Uh, that hit the tower. And, and we would also know that what happened then was just one tiny corner of an absolutely horrific tragedy that was affecting the lives of thousands and thousands of people and was throwing our country into a turmoil not seen since Pearl Harbor. And I remember coming out of the fellowship hall and walking down the hallway out there and, and seeing people starting to come into the building and hearing the phones in the in the reception area just ringing off the hook. And I saw church members coming in as I was making my way towards this emergency meeting that we'd called for right here in the sanctuary. And people were literally pulling off the road. People who had never come into this church building before. Some of them had never been in a church for, for, except for weddings and funerals for years just randomly pulling in, parking in the parking lot here, and coming into the building, looking for something, trying to find some kind of meaning or reassurance or stability or hope in the midst of that time. And I remember thinking to myself then, in a way that that it would just expand in understanding as it went on, this changes everything. I mean, this is going to really change things we will never again feel quite so safe. We will never again uh, move with such ease and casual freedom. I mean, there are going to be consequences to this. They're going to clamp down on security. Uh, there, there, there's going to be just a heightened awareness everywhere. This could have big implications for our relationship with, with Muslim neighbors and friends. Uh, I mean, this is going to change so much of what it means to live... In this time and in this country We'll have to go after the people that did this Life's going to be different And much of that has proved true 9-11 On 9-11 everything changed But not all of the changes that happened On that day And in the days that followed Were terrible ones Isn't that right? Right? We got a a sense of that in the video a moment ago. Not all of the things that happened, the consequences were tragic ones. That day of calamity became in some senses an hour of clarity for an awful lot of people. Things that had gotten a lot fuzzier than they should be came into very sharp focus again for many of us. Things that, that, that we just took for granted suddenly came up on the priority list in our, in our minds. We, we, we saw suddenly the importance of values and of freedoms. Uh, we remembered the preciousness of family and, and of friends. We began to cherish neighbors in, in a deeper way. And and every time we got on an airplane after that, at least in those early months, we would look around at the other people traveling with us on the airplane, and this thought would go through our minds. We're in this together. We're in this together. We rise or we fall together. One of the things that got clearest of all, at least for me and I think for many others during that time, one of the most important learnings, I think, of that day is that it really, really matters who your authority is. Before 9-11, many Americans had frankly gotten fuzzy about that. Many of us in this country had this sense that who or what you believe in doesn't really make all that much practical difference. Value systems are, you know, all pretty relative. Uh, Which religion you choose to pursue may have personal significance, but not a lot of public influence. But that changed for a lot of us on September the 11th. As we began to see that, that which authority you choose... Which authority you listen to and you take your direction from in this life really, really counts. Those men who hijacked the planes that day were very faithful to their authority. You can say a lot about them, but this much you have to admit they were utterly dedicated to their authority. They were listening to Osama bin Laden. They were imbibing his view of life. They were completely internalizing his his desires for the change needed in the world. They were owning his sense of the will of God. And they made a chain of choices based on their absolute confidence, maybe a trembling confidence at times, in his authority. They were relentlessly committed to doing what they could to shape the kind of world he envisioned. Their authority taught them that it is pleasing to God, actually a delight to God, to sacrifice yourself in order to kill other people who will not submit to him. Such is the power of one's authority, potentially. But there were also, on that day, others who responded to a very different kind of authority. And in ways, frankly, that maybe some of them had not even contemplated doing for a very, very long time. There were people like Todd Beamer, you know his story. Young Christian father on that flight 93, who, when he realizes that their hijackers have taken the plane and in cell phone communications with loved ones, he and others discover that it's believed they're heading to crash the plane and destroy thousands of lives offers one final prayer with his wife on the phone, and then along with a band of others, storms the hijackers and sacrifices their lives to save the lives of thousands. There were all of those firefighters in New York, many of them Catholic guys, Irish and Italian and Polish guys, who who, who responded in in almost unthinkable ways, who responded to the voice, I suppose, of, of an authority that they had heard in some way ever since they were old enough to know what a crucifix was. And so when the moment of choice came, they did exactly the opposite of what every natural human instinct would say you should do. When you face... A burning building that's falling down. The object in life is to go down and out. And they did just the opposite. They went in and up. If they could save even one more life, they would sacrifice themselves. And this kind of response was not just there in New York, or in Washington, or in that field in Pennsylvania. All over America. I mean, do you remember this? All over America, people began to move in response to a different kind of authority. They, they looked above their obsessive to-do lists. And they left behind what they now saw had been just kind of petty preoccupations and squabbles. They opened their wallets up and they extended their hands. And people began to take leaves from their jobs and and from their homes. And they went off to volunteer someplace. And so we saw executives standing next to homeless people working in shelters and and feeding the the tired relief and rescue workers in, in, in Manhattan. We saw college kids, you know, taking a break from school and going and spending days scrubbing the apartments of the soot on the walls. Apartments of people that were strangers to them. Just trying to restore some kind of normalcy and relief to them. We saw little school children reaching out to their Muslim classmates so that hatred and fear would not win, would not further divide us as a people. On 9-11 and in the days that followed that, we saw a lot of rage and a lot of brokenness. Let's not, let's not perfume all of it, right? We saw a lot that we still regret, that we still ache over but we also caught a glimpse of the remarkable beauty of human lives responding to the authority of a Jesus-like love. And we must never forget that. The outside world looked on breathlessly. There were editorials... And news programs all around the planet talking about the revival of respect for American character, talking about this revival of the moral authority of Americans. How many of you, how many of you remember the day when everything changed? A decade's worth of dust has now settled. And many of the changes that looked to be forever ones have proven fickle. I think you'd agree. Somehow, the clarity of that time was lost and we went back again and we in a sense descended further again we we spent ourselves into near oblivion you know after this time when we saw so clearly it's not the stuff of life it's the people it's the relationships it's love and faith and hope that matter we suddenly went on the wildest spending spree. We had to have the biggest of everything. And we spent ourselves into near oblivion. And, and, and we seemed incapable of restraint, self-restraint, individually, corporately. Suddenly, we, we, we returned to slashing at each other. I mean, we couldn't agree on anything anymore. We couldn't get our politics together. We couldn't get our, our social differences t- together. We, we turned our eyes away from the heroes of 9-11 and began to become obsessed again with what Kim Kardashian is doing. Good God! Or the cast of Jersey Shore. We started listening all over again to so many inferior voices from that supremely good voice that consciously or unconsciously so many seem to move to in the days after September 11th. I think that what is at stake right now is once again the question of authority. This is how I boil it all down. This is how I put together the events of 9-11 and the season since with today. I think we must return to the fundamental question of authority. Which authority, which source of vision, values, will guide our individual and our our community life in the days ahead as we face the new challenges of our time? And they're not small. They are not small. Who do we trust, really trust, Knows the principles and practices that will advance life for the most number of people? What clear set of instructions do we understand enough that we're trying to follow them in the belief that it's going to create a better world for us and for a whole lot of other people? Whose voice is going to determine our flight path when we get up out of bed every Tuesday morning and all the other days in between? This is the question of authority. There are always going to be many voices, many would-be authorities competing for our allegiance in this regard. You know that, right? And we should learn to recognize them, uh, these different voices. Some of us take a lot of our orders from the authority of popular culture. We would not like to admit that, but we do. We're paying a lot of attention to what is being done What's done? What's in? What's hot? What's new? What's the rage? What's the flow? We're paying a lot of attention to the popular culture. We watch what we watch. We spend what we spend. We do what we do. We talk the way we do because that's what the flow is. That's what others are doing. And it's authoritative for us. Others of us are constantly responding to the voice of something that happened in our past. Some terrible hardship or some terrible injustice in our past. And we're just driven by the, the voice of that loss or of the judges or of the critics in our life. And we go about trying to prove them wrong or to prove ourselves right or to, or, or, or to, or to bang back against the life that, that injured us. And we don't even face up to how haunted we are by our angers and our anxieties and our fears. And we're just driven by these things. They are authoritative for us. And then, some of us just rebel at this whole idea I'm suggesting. I mean, we rebel. We we think that's kind of stupid. We do not think of ourselves as sheeple, you know, right? We think of ourselves as independent actors. and And, and we're... We hate this idea that somebody else is actually our authority. Our ingenuity is our authority. And yet if we could take a webcam and get it inside of our heads, it it, it would show how much we're looking to money or science or government or something else, surgery, plastic surgery, to deliver us, to, to save us. So I want to invite you to just ask this question to yourself very seriously this morning. This is, the, this is the question. Who, Who is the highest authority really? Not who would you like it to be. Who, when you're in church, do you feel like you should say it is? Who is it? Who is the highest authority in my life? Who do I trust so much? and listen to so often and follow so fully that it really is the thing that shapes the character and the conduct of my life for the good or for less. Jesus says, Please let it be me. Please. Recognize me. Christ has not been surprised by anything in our last decade. Jesus wasn't stunned by the mortgage crisis. He wasn't blindsided by the decay of our political conversations or the fragmentation of our families. Jesus was not in any way shocked by the decline of American competitiveness or in any way Amazed by the rise of vulgarity in the culture. He never looked at any of these things that have happened since 9-11 and said, "Ooh, how could that ever have happened? How could that have happened? He knows exactly how it happened. He's always known. Because Jesus is authoritative. I mean, he is the smartest Intelligence in all of the universe and whatever else there is. And he made this as clear to us as he knew how to make it when he walked upon the earth and when he spoke these very powerful words that have become known as the Great Commission. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I'm not just one point of view amongst many views. I tell you, trust me, all authority, all wisdom, all capacity, all power, all help is ultimately in my hands. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Jesus claims to be the greatest authority on what makes life work badly and on what makes life work well. In fact, he said that there are certain moral and spiritual roads that even though they can grow very popular, lead to destruction. And there are ways that lead to life, even though few people seem to figure it out. And he says, because of this reality, it is crucial. You be really careful about who you choose as your guide. And he says, please, let me be your way. Let me be your truth. Let me be your life. And to those who have chosen Jesus, as that guide, he issues these very specific instructions. I want to think about those with you today. Therefore, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, help everybody, help everybody that you know and that you can come into my family circle. Help them come close to me to find communion with me so that they can learn of me because that is how the world will get renewed. Help them come to know me. Government's not going to be able to renew the world. Okay? It's not. They'd have done it already if they could do it. Private enterprise is not going to be able to do it. It's just not going to be able to do it on its own. Science, academia, certainly not Hollywood, not going to fix the world. Not going to fix the world. These institutions are all valuable parts of the big puzzle. But before culture can change, think about this carefully. Before institutions can change, individuals must change individual beliefs and orientations must change. People need to learn the root causes of their problems. They need to learn new values and motivations and behaviors. And that is where I can help, Jesus is saying. Bring people to the circle so they can learn of me. So teach them, he goes on, To obey everything I have commanded you. And there's a lot in those words. Just that one sentence, teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, a lot worth thinking about. First, Jesus is suggesting that before you and I can teach anybody anything, we actually have to know everything he's commanded us. Do we know it? A lot of us know a little bit of it. We've got these favorite verses we go back to, these passages that we love to, to dwell on, sometimes to speak. But we've got to get very familiar with the full range, and it's a big range, of all that Jesus said about life. Secondly, you need to actually obey these instructions, Jesus is saying. Not just to entertain them, not just talk about them, but actually do them consistently. Christ says elsewhere, if you love me, if you love me, I mean, if your heart beats for me, you will do what? Obey, follow, put into practice what I command. What do you think people are taught by Christians who speak but don't actually do what Jesus commands? What do you think the world gets taught by Christians who meet in beautiful buildings, to talk about what Jesus commands, but don't actually do it. I think this is what they take away. They think, gosh, when I love somebody, I get pretty passionate about trying to fulfill that person's wishes. I'm not going to do it perfectly, but it's a concern of mine to try and fulfill those wishes. So those people must not really love Jesus. They must not. Or they think... I guess hypocrisy is fine in the Christian life. I guess that's just sort of the way it should go. Apparently, Christian faith is a head game. It doesn't really make practical difference. Okay, that's fine. Let them do what they want. If they want to go together to the, the buildings, and they want to lose the chance to sleep in on a Sunday. Doesn't make a difference to me. Not obviously making much of a difference to them. But that's not true. The way of Jesus makes... A profound difference. It really does. It just has to be tried in its entirety. And this is why I think that Jesus puts this extra emphasis where he does in that statement. I I am asking you, he says, to obey everything that I have commanded you. Everything I am commanding you. And that is hard. That is really hard. We've got these commandments of Jesus that really seem easy to understand and easy to put into practice and easy to like. And then there are those others that just seem so crazy, so difficult, and frankly, not very appetizing. That whole enemy stuff, for example. Right? But I want you to do everything I've commanded you anyway, says Jesus because this this is an integrated whole life to which I am calling you. Uh, You can no more adopt just a little bit and a little piece of my way here and there as you choose and and expect to get great results from that than you can leave out bits and pieces of golf or the marriage covenant or financial responsibility and expect a great result. For years... I have been very good at practicing bits and pieces of taking care of my own health. I mean, if you ask me, are you a healthy person, Dan? I would say, yeah. I mean, I exercise hard, sporadically. (laughs) I eat all kinds of fruits and vegetables when I'm not eating the mega burger and fries. I'm great about rest. Except, you know, those times when I got to stay up till three or four to get stuff done. And as you know, this bits and pieces approach earned me a really nice heart attack a couple months ago. Jesus says... If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. We don't like that word obey, I know that. We all hate it, Americans hate it especially, obey. It's against our whole individualistic orientation. It just bugs us that he gives us commandments instead of fine recommendations, (laughs) helpful suggestions. But these things, says Jesus, I have spoken to you that my my joy may be in you. Friends, that's why I'm telling you these things, says Jesus. Not to be difficult, not to be your master. I want you to live in all of its fullness. I tell you these things that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full, may be complete. Christ's promise is that if we give ourselves over to his way, our lives will be full of life and joy. You know what? My life is slowly changing. I am under authority now in a way I never was. I've got a trainer and a dietitian. I go three times a week. I meet with these ladies. They are tough. They have all kinds of commandments. Okay? They do. They push me very, very hard. But it's funny because as tough as those instructions are at many times, I do not question the authority of the people that are telling me this stuff. I I, I do not resent them for telling me to obey these commandments. I know, I know that they are telling me things that I have probably forgotten or maybe never even learned. I believe they're trying to make sure I don't lose life and joy. Jesus is like this. He is like this. He's the most loving, authoritative trainer on the way to life that exists. He knows a lot about this world and the human heart and the human way. He, 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 knows, he knows that we got attacked hard on 9 11. He, he knows we've had tough times since then. He knows that we're facing very difficult times now. He knows when something even worse might happen out there in the future, but he also knows that something far worse has already happened. In the last 10 years, we've suffered a heart attack as a people. We really have. All the clogging and the seizing and the pain is so evident everywhere. We've gotten such a distance from our creator. Our moral health has gotten worse instead of better. Our social cells have begun attacking each other in a way that the body cannot bear. And we keep pointing to all of these problems out there. It's China. We got worried about China. It's the competition with China that's our problem. But the problem's not out there. The problem, the deepest problem, it's it's right in here. It's right in here. And we must recover or we must find for the first time the way of Jesus. Because as individuals get renewed by that way, so shall institutions and society. That is why I'm asking you, I am pleading with you to join me to bring as many others as you can into this circle as we return to this place in the weeks ahead we are going to spend a whole year thinking together about the implications of that one verse. It's our theme verse for the year. We are going to look together at everything Jesus commanded. At the end of this, you will know the whole enchilada. We will knock it off one commandment per session. And each week we're going to ask ourselves and we'll discuss with our partners, what would it look like? to really be obeying that commandment. And what difference would it make to me, to our household, to the workplace, to the people that I influence, if I really lived it, and we all really lived it, very consistently. And I will give away what I think at the start. Uh, I'll let you know what I think. I think that if we could help each other really start, make a start at doing consistently what Jesus calls us to do, it might become a movement. And if it kept going, you know what? We would see everything changed. Please pray with me. For lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Lord, thank you so much for that promise, for that assurance that as we embark upon this journey, we're not walking alone. We're walking your way. We're walking with you, who are the way. And so, Lord, do in us what we can't do for ourselves. But keep us, Lord, from not doing that which we can do, that which you've called us to do, that which you have commanded us to do, that we may enter into life. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.